Hi there. Uh, welcome to the first To Johnny's podcast. Um, I'm Johnny. And I'm Johnny. And uh, hopefully you can tell the difference between us, between our voices. Um, so just wanted to give you an idea of how this podcast will work. And so, yeah, what we will do each week is kind of have a bit of a theme that we're going to follow through through the podcast. We want to talk about what's going on now, but we also might talk about a little bit of history um, and also want to keep you informed about what's happening in the coming weeks and, and months and years. Um, and now it's starting. Now things are actually starting to happen post lockdown. Anything you want to add? I think, well, it's, it, I think you've summed it up very well, Johnny, I must say. But yeah, I, I suppose we, we are two got to add that we're two very passionate Formula One fans and I guess it came this idea came together from us over many many years now because I think I first we first crossed paths maybe in 2012 2013 something like that I think that sounds you about know, right it, yeah. yeah it feels I mean it feels longer but it has been it has <laughs> it's been quite a few years and I think we we kind of it ended up naturally gravitating as as nights out went on to just end up talking about Formula One and, yeah, much to the chagrin of everyone around us. Yeah, and and, and you know what? I'd love to be able to say that like all of our friends would come and say, "Yeah, guy, you you guys just go and do a podcast, just get it out of your way." But actually, probably the opposite would be true from those people. <laughs> they probably say, "For the love of God, do not <laughs> do not do a podcast." Yeah, I think the likelihood is they more likely said, "Shut up, and yeah, let's that's... talk about something that's not Formula One." It's all flooding back to me now. <laughs> like I'm, I'm I'm getting flashbacks. But yeah, we're two uh, we're two very passionate fans who find ourselves talking about things that we find that's not really out there on the internet so you know johnny talked about it before stories from the history of motorsport there's a lot of things with it being an ever-evolving ever-changing world and there's pure volume of stuff to go out and watch and listen to and you know take part in there's so many different elements and so for us we're going to try and bring you some you know things that you might not have heard about before or delve in deeper to things you always wanted to know. I think from there, maybe just to, to, to give you a bit more of an introduction to today's podcast, is talking about uh, the virtual Le Mans that's just happened, eSport in general. And uh, I think something else to kind of mention is we're also going to talk about Williams and their successful eSport um, campaigns of late, as maybe there's been some, some bad news surrounding Williams at the moment. But we want to talk about the positives as well as the negatives of, of Williams currently. Yeah, I mean, and by positives, we mean, you know, everything outside of their Formula One campaign. And But I just want to commend you, Johnny, there on the flawless one-show style link there that you did from <laughs> Le Mans into the virtual Le Mans. Uh, that was, that, that's impressive. I mean, I've, I mean, I'm going to give you a round of applause for that because that was impressive. That was nice. <laughs> I like that. So, well, do we do we go on to the news? Should we do I think we should, yeah. So let's do the news. Flawless, huh? So, as F1 gears up to return on Friday the 3rd of July at 10 o'clock with the first free practice round at the Red Bull Ring or Spielberg circuit in Austria, F1 teams have been gearing up for their return with several test sessions of note, including over 100 laps for Daniel Ricciardo in the 2018 Renault car. And Johnny, he was quite positive from everything he said in the media afterwards uh, about that run. And he actually said it was a bit of a compliment for, for Renault in terms of how far F1 cars have come in just two years. Yeah, definitely. He, he seemed very positive about it. Um, the cynic in me wonders if he's trying to maybe repair uh, some lost trust with his mean? current move. What could you possibly mean, Johnny? <laughs> For our listeners who may not know, what could you possibly be referring to? Um, 
Cyril Abitbull, who is the team principal, when uh, uh, Daniel decided to move to McLaren after just realistically one season, because let's be honest, there's been no real season this year so far, apart from a winter task, um, and probably took quite a lot of Renault's money with him, realistically. Uh, I think he's been paid quite handsomely for his couple of seasons there, um, and moved to a team that is some not a works team, Um I think he ruffled some feathers somewhat, maybe at Renault when he did that. And I think uh, so. there was some some little side swipes aimed towards him from Cyril Abitbull um, in that's, the that's press releases be... when he's left. So maybe... It's going to be one of those names, <laughs> I reckon, as we go on. Not to cut you mid-flow, Johnny, but it's going to be one of those names as we go on that we're going to have seven different pronunciations of. I think it almost needs a counter up <laughs> as to how we say a beatable or a beatable. Yeah. I don't know how we're going to get it wrong is what I'm saying. So if if you are listening and you want to put it in the comments below that we've completely said it wrong, please let us know because I I mean I would I want I'd like to learn. I, I like learning new things. I would yeah, and I think also Cyril if you're listening because yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you like. <laughs> he he tuned out uh, as soon as we said his name wrong. <laughs> he was like I'm well, done. Yeah, quite. <laughs> I, I think though also I think you I think you know if you want to come on the show and tell your side of the story maybe that wasn't a side swiper uh, uh, Daniel I mean it, it definitely felt like it and I think it was interpreted by most as one but if you want to come on and tell your side of the story I'm sure we would always be happy to have a guest yeah I agree so Cyril if, particularly if Cyril's character uh, 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 yeah go ahead. Cyril if you're out there <laughs> that is an open invitation to come on the two Johnny's podcast you are more than welcome but yeah so you know Daniel Ricardo the cynic in us may think that you know Daniel Ricciardo's comments about unity and, and how good Renault's cars is a attempt at rebuilding some bridges that were thoroughly burnt by Cyril after the, the wake of the Ricciardo news. Um, but yeah, he's geared up, and I believe Esteban Ocon was in the car uh, as well on the day that we're recording it, which is uh, the 19th of June. We understand that Esteban Ocon had a run uh, in the car. No details yet as to how many laps he's done. Um, but I think that that's going to be an interesting topic that we're going to probably talk about over the course of the next few podcasts is actually Ocon's a little bit of a dark horse. Uh, I think a few are discounting him. Um, and I suppose another thing that we definitely need to talk about, Johnny, is the ratings that came out from Codemasters. And I'd like to know oh, yeah. the uh, brand of marijuana they were smoking when they released those. Because, um, yeah, I think it should be available. But everyone knows that Valkyrie Podcast is one of the best drivers on the grid. Be, it well. should be available uh, for general use, is all I'm saying. Sharing is caring, Codemasters. <laughs> But don't you think that Charles Leclerc is, is a you know far inferior driver to uh, Valtteri Bottas? I, I've always thought that. You know me. Like I look at junior records and I think they're nothing. They're meaningless. You've always got to you've got to look at you know. Well, I mean, you've got to look at just how well Bottas has done in Codemasters games and you know how brilliant he's been because that's clearly what they're judging it on. Or how there's, there, well, there's one of two things: either Codemasters really have a low opinion of Sebastian Vettel. Yeah. Or um, yeah, I just think that maybe they wrote to Bonotto about it. I don't, is my is my suggestion. <laughs> but it, what it does? How much money has? How much money did Mercedes pay them? To, uh... <laughs> it, do you know what? Actually, though, the, the, we are tangenting. We're tangenting now, if that's even a word. Already, by quite a long way. Yeah. A long way. But I think it does say something interesting about the route in which Codemasters have taken these F1 games. I one of my big irritations because I as maybe listeners to the podcast may know because let's be honest it's it's only you know my mum who's listening right now hi mum but um for those of you who do know me i'm a massive gamer i'm absolutely into into my racing sims um so i played the f1 games actually since codemasters took over the franchise and 
had long history playing the ones before. And it's long bugged me the way Codemasters set up AI drivers because it's the same. There's no room for individual brilliance at different tracks or anything like that. So there was no kind of thought put into making a particular driver strong at a particular track. For example, Lewis Hamilton has come out several times in the media and said how strong Valtteri Bottas is at Russia yeah, or in Sochi. He's, he's come out several times as saying that. But, you know, every time on the F1 game, Hamilton will out-qualify Bottas around Sochi. So I think this is a step in the right direction. All, jo- all jokes aside, you know, about Codemasters and, and the ratings, I think it's a step in the right direction. But also it smacks to me of a little bit of a step in the wrong direction because what Valtteri Bottas' rating tells me is that they're not going to actually do anything with the performance of the cars. It's going to be completely driver skill dependent as to how well a driver does in a race. Because let's be honest, if you stuck, say, Lance Stroll, and I'm not picking on you here, Lance. I'm just, you know, throwing your name out there. <laughs> I wasn't, I promise. I wasn't picking on him. Uh, let me try another one. Let's try, okay. Uh, I'll go into the, the lexicon of everything. Perez, what about Perez? Per- well, I want to, because Perez is quite good. Sorry, no, Stroll. I didn't yeah, mean that's it. I didn't I mean, mean it. It's a balance. That's what I meant, it's a bit of a balance. So, let's, yeah, let's take, uh, no, I'll, I'll use Stroll. I'll use Stroll. I'll be, I'll, I'll be horrible to performance. If we put Stroll in that Mercedes, there's a chance. That's him off of the list of people who are going to come yeah, on our podcast I, now, isn't it's it? It's day one and we've already lost Cyril and we've lost Lance. And, it's, and let's be honest, Lance is going to be in that grid for 20 years because his dad will pay for it. So. <laughs> we, just, we need to have more foresight before we slag people off. <laughs> you know. But it, I think, you know, if you stuck Stroll in that Mercedes, let's be realistic, he would be achieving podiums. So F1 is still a car-dominated sport. Um, and it's, yeah. it's kind of interesting to see Codemasters go down that line of uh, making it driver-dependent because, I'm sorry, there's no way on earth that Valtteri Bottas is the same level as Max Verstappen, which, according to the ratings he is, I believe they both have a 93 rating, which is a bit like comparing Cristiano Ronaldo to Emil Heskey on FIFA, in my opinion. But we'll... Yeah, well, <laughs> and, and and I do think you know, two years ago, if the rating had been that, I would have maybe said, okay, fair enough. I think that uh, I think Bottas gets the end of the races more. But actually, I mean, when was the last time that you know that Vettel, uh, that Vettel, sorry, that Verstappen made a a major mistake? I, I can't really think. He's pretty solid these days. I think it would be twenty eighteen. I think it would be during uh, maybe uh, we can probably talk about brazil at some stage that would have oh, that would have been a lovely link back to Ocon as we were talking about him because i suppose yeah. you know brazil in my opinion was a mistake on verstappen's behalf not in the term of the action you know Ocon's obviously in the wrong from a racing instant point of view but max choosing to race him as opposed to just letting him go and relap relapping him a lap later when you've got a 10 second buffer to hamilton is beyond me why he tried to race him um but, you know, I, I agree that would be the last time we saw a major mistake from, from, from Max. I think arguably other than other than Hamilton, he was yeah. the strongest driver in Formula 1 last year. And I think if, you know, if you isolate that Brazil incident, probably Monaco, you know, 2018 before then, there, you know, there was the string of incidents and you kind of thought, oh, no, someone needs to sit this guy down and calm him down. I mean, I was there. I saw, saw his incident live in front of my eyes in China. 2018 and you had to think what the hell was he doing at that moment in time but you know he, he did he calmed down he put his head down and he you know fair play to him he didn't lose any of the speed because you'd think sometimes when you know Roman Grosjean and things like that calm themselves down they lose some of that one lap pace they lose some of that you know gung-ho and he hasn't he's still probably the best overtaker on the grid I would argue um I might, I might and... argue against you there but I don't want us to Ooh. we're only we're 14 minutes in I don't want us to fall out <laughs> 12 minutes when this is edited down no, so I think sorry, you know. we're only, we've only just started <laughs> listeners are <I'm> <laughs> falling out 
but I, I, it is again it's, it's i agree with you i think he hasn't it's a sign of actually just how much of a scary talent he is there was i remember a, a phrase of first you know this is going to get you know this needs tiny violins playing in the background here as i take you back in time to my childhood when i first picked up a copy of autosport magazine it was for the uh, 2009 f1 tests and i remember reading in that the phrase uh, that sebastian vettel was a nuclear talent now if, if sebastian vettel was a nuclear talent i don't know what that makes max verstappen because you know uh, he is scary his ability uh and and his and his level um of overtaking agree i i will still hold my gun that i have another name in mind um in terms of the best overtaker on the grid it's roma no i'm joking um it's obviously mr ricardo for me i think uh you kind of yeah i think that's a fair comment and it's and it's purely about oh go on disagree with me this is how we get the this is how we get the listeners in really <laughs> needs to be edgy they would be the two though i i think the thing with ricardo is it, he always comes off um, I think his overtakes. Are, do you know who his overtakes remind me of? Someone who's not on the grid anymore. Jensen Button. When I, I rewatched the 2011 Canada of the day, mm. and and I I think Jensen's problem was he, he probably was never quite as fast as Danny, except when the car was perfect. Yeah. But Danny is. I think uh, I, I think uh, Martin Brundle calls him something like the race thief. Burglar, the racing, the, the raccoon from yeah. yeah, and he is. He just likes to go. In. I mean, I I've been to three F1 races in the last five years, and he's won two of them. He, both of them stolen out of nowhere, like you never have guessed it. Not nowhere near the fastest car. One of them with the worst Renault engine ever made in the back of the car, mm. and uh, which was you know first year of hybrids, and uh, managed to win at Spa, which is an engine dependent track. So I'm going to pick up two things there from what you said, Johnny. First one is now we're, oh, we're we are definitely not we're definitely not getting Cyril now. I mean, you, you, that is that just got shot in the head. And the second one is that you know if you'd like if you are a Daniel Ricardo fan and you want to see him win more races, buy Johnny a ticket and you are guaranteed to see a Ricardo win. But that's you know I think that will be the interesting one to see this season is how he and particular Esteban Ocon get on and hopefully because of the history that they both have with with Max Verstappen, we see a little bit of on track racing between them and Red Bull. I don't know. I get a feeling that actually Renault have made some good gains, you know, and we'll probably come on to it when we, we you know, maybe do a digest of testing for next week's episode. Mm-hmm. Renault look good on the long run. Although they, this is, yeah, I think they do. Although I think this is an area we may disagree. I think they're the sixth fastest car currently, whether they will manage to develop that somewhat over the season and whether they've got on top of things more. But I just, I, I don't think that car looked into testing like it had a particular, certainly on the one lap turn of speed. Mm. I I tend to be in the camp that I think that the the McLaren is the fastest car with a Renault engine in the back at the moment. Yeah, and 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 I think I'd probably be more inclined to agree with you, uh, based on if nothing else, we go we go back on on how strong the rate of development for McLaren is at the moment, mm-hmm. especially during twenty nineteen. But yeah, so that's that's Renault obviously testing, and the, from the one of which there is quite a lot of discussion about the the kind of where they're going to be in the running order. They can. I'm pretty sure there'll be no debate about Mercedes, who also did a test this week. Uh, they ran Lewis Hamilton and Valtteri Bottas again in the 2018 Challenger. For those of you maybe wondering at home why it's the 2018 Challenger, it's a rule Formula One brought in, I want to say over a decade ago now, about allowing you know in-season testing when the prohibitions came around. They decided to allow uh, teams to use uh, two-year-old F1 cars, so it led to a couple of interesting tests. So one, one for the you know the 
uh, fellow Norses, and I say that you know flatteringly, being a Norse myself, in 2009 when Schumacher was coming back or supposed to come back and replace Massa, he tested a 2007 Ferrari using the GP2 tyres. So this rule goes back quite a long way, but it's been quite helpful in terms of the preparations for the new COVID race world that we find ourselves in for those teams. Definitely. I, th- I think that's possibly an important distinction as well with these and I think it's still the case that they're the 2018 cars but they're also not with the current F1 tyres on them they're they're they are with almost tyres they basically they're they're technically filming days I believe so technically they're meant to be out there filming them for promotional reasons uh, which is a reason why a couple of teams haven't been able to do it um mixed with engine supply problems uh is that they've used those days up to film at the start of the year and now don't have these filming days less left to go and, and get their drivers up to speed on um and one of those teams that also has a renault engine in the back is mclaren and i wonder what they've been up to well from, from the looks of it johnny they are one of the teams you may have alluded to in your statement there, that they are not able to test and by all accounts, it's due to the current restrictions that uh, several European countries are in, particularly France and the UK. Uh, there are quarantine rules in place between France and the UK. So obviously that 14-day self-quarantine would mean that for McLaren, who obviously have a Renault uh, engine, would be unable to run that engine uh, in the car because they would require people to come over from France to facilitate the, the kind of engineering of it. Uh, what did make me laugh uh, when I read that in the news was uh, that Red Bull would have no such issues if they wanted to test because Honda are based in the UK. So for uh, well the at least the engineers who are uh, required to fire up and run the engine are based in the UK. Uh, so for uh, McLaren, had they not <laughs> made that switch to Renault, they might actually be running a car right now. But I'm not gonna not gonna get into the uh, the nitty gritty because I don't think any of us could maybe doubt that the Renault switch longer term might have been the best decision. But that again, I think should be a topic of discussion at some point for us. My my other understanding actually on it is that McLaren have actually used all of their their testing days up. So although that's the reason they kind of stated publicly, which I almost felt like a, a slight dig at Renault. Everyone seems to have it in for Renault, including um, us. I wonder why. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, the thing that I, one of the reasons I saw that McLaren wanted to switch to Mercedes is that Renault basically wanted to do a, a, a racing point style deal with McLaren where they forced them to have their gearbox and suspension and blah, blah, blah. Whereas Mercedes were quite happy to do like they, they currently do with Williams and just sell them the engine, um, which is what McLaren wanted because they, you know, they aspire to be a world championship team. And let's be honest, are you going to be a world championship team if you're using someone else's year old gearbox? Agree. Probably not. And I think it's a it's a point as well about you know the actual influence that, that Formula One has in in the road car market today, in the sense of the original motivation behind Norbert Haug and and everyone in, in two thousand nine to looking to secure, um, and they they did try and buy McLaren first of all. It is worth pointing that out that that ended them eventually buying Braun was because they felt that McLaren was moving too much into the road car sector and becoming a, a threat to Mercedes in that area. But actually, what we've seen over the past 10 years is a divergence in terms of the markets that both McLaren and Mercedes have, have, have been in. McLaren have tended to pursue the flagship hypercar uh, style of road car, whereas Mercedes, I mean, they have their high-performance AMG version, but I think it's chalk and cheese between a, 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 one of their AMG SLSs and, say, a, a P1 or a 650S. Um, that's, uh, but, and yeah. for those Norse fans at home, yeah, I, I bet you appreciated that one. I bet that one, that one was good for you, uh, just name-dropping McLarens like that. But yeah, I think the, the point stands in terms of, you know, they're, they're no longer threats. So 
all of that kind of issue that they had 10 years ago about maybe not wanting to be or six years ago now, whatever it was in terms of their engine partnership ending, um, I think has probably been put to the back burner. And it's obviously important. You mentioned a key thing there, Johnny, around the gearbox. You know, McLaren make their own gearbox. You know, and they were for a time supplying it to Racing Point, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. So for them, it's important that they retain that identity. So that's very interesting around the Renault thing because that's not something you know I was I was particularly aware of. Yeah, it is. It, that was that supposedly the the whole is that Renault almost wanted them to be a B team, which let's be honest, McLaren is never as again you alluded to. They're in. They like Ferrari or Mercedes or Renault or a car manufacturer. And at the end of the day, they're there to sell cars. And if their, you know, their cars aren't winning races, then, you know, what's the business model for them to be in F1 racing? That it's not. So, um, you know, they've made a, a lot of progress. And I, th- I think you're right. I think that moving to the Mercedes engine makes sense from a business point of view and a, um, a sporting point of view now. Um, and I do think that like you say McLaren make mid-engine hypercars and that's I mean Mercedes have never really done that even if you look back at the you know the SLK and stuff yeah and, and even co-developed with McLaren yeah. they were front engine they were actually so I think uh yeah uh, one one wonders how much of it was to do with Ron Dennis and his aspirations for the business at the time as well um but yeah well, that's 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 a very interesting topic, and and we will come back to that F one fan. I promise. <laughs> There's so much to talk about, and see this this hopefully vindicates for those of you listening at home that there is so many layers to to, to the motorsport world and the things we can go from. You know, the, the levels of Ron Dennis, and I think that's going to link into a discussion we actually have later on this episode about the future of maybe a couple of Formula One teams who have actually fl- discussed the mm-hmm. idea of floating themselves on the stock market again, looking for external investment. But I suppose the, the good thing, Johnny, is that for McLaren's racing drivers, the lack of testing or the ability to testing hasn't impacted Lando and Carlos, who have been, by all accounts, out having fun in F3 cars and carts. Yeah, definitely. And they probably have less stress and more fun than anyone. They've both been blasting around Silverstone in F3 cars in the pouring rain. Um great fun yeah and, and for those of you we are going to do it i'd said before that we weren't going to do this but we'll do a bit of a shameless plug if you'd like to see onboard footage of lando driving the f3 car and, and some good little kart racing between the two of them then uh yeah you can look at lando's log which has just been posted on youtube i think so yeah have a, have a look at that on his on his youtube channel it's, it's a very good watch and uh i think just for uh for time's sake johnny i think we've got to say a little bit of sadness obviously that the news that ricardo is going to mclaren does break up one of them most budding bromances that's been in Formula One for the past few years in uh, Carlos and Lando. They haven't got themselves a little name yet for the for the bromance that's been budding, but I'm definitely going to miss that when that ends. I agree. I funnily enough, actually, the other day Formula One released a little video where you know they they asked drivers very quick questions, and one of the questions was who's your best friend on the grid, and they both said each other, oh, which was see, I that's, quite that's just sweet. nice. <laughs> <laughs> and bearing in mind, obviously, Lando has been you know come up through with karting and lower formulas with a lot of drivers on the grid and you know a lot of the drive those drivers are friendly with each other and they quite clearly are they he's quite friendly with you know Alex Albon and George Russell and they, they he knows Leclerc fairly well and, and etc um, and Gasly and things um for him to say that someone who's his teammate and is what five years his senior yeah. six years his senior um I think it was quite nice really it, it will be a shame but I am also excited I I think Lando and Ricardo together will be It'll be quite interesting. I think they're both um, quite funny drivers that will maybe play off each other somewhat. I agree. And I think you only have to look back to uh, Silverstone 
last year and the press conference there to see what can happen when those <laughs> two are, are in a room together. Um, and I think it's good. I think it does actually speak for, for Carlos's maturity and how he's grown into that role at McLaren. Uh, and again, it's, it's one of those things around Formula One, which is people often assume that it's just you put the best driver in the best car and you're going to get results. It's not always that simple. You need to be, uh, some drivers, I think at least, need to feel loved and supported. Even Lewis Hamilton, you know, even his dominance that he's had in Mercedes. There was a time at McLaren where on occasions he was nowhere. And that's because his personal life wasn't necessarily where he wanted it to be. He didn't feel he had the support from the team. And there was quite a few occasions where Jensen had the better of him because, you know, not just in terms of feeling of the car, but Jensen just had the better all-round setup and the all-round relationship with, with the team. So it is more than just being able to drive faster. that ability to motivate those around you and actually get the best from you. And I think that was one of the most impressive things about that McLaren last year is that even um, through the trials and tribulations that they've had over the past few years, that that team still performed as strongly as it did when it had the opportunity. Because it's the same guys, you know, the, the same two guys who are engineering uh, Lando and, and Carlos were the uh, engineers for, for Fernando and Stoffel. So it's, it's, it's pretty much the same team. You know, Seidel's obviously reinvigorated that team quite a bit. Uh, yeah, huge. But it, it is, it is the I mean, fundamentals. I, I, I do think it's interesting as well. I think Carlos actually has very much proven himself as a team leader, which I don't think is a position that anyone previously thought in the sport. And I think where that has come out to be quite interesting is that um, it's it's created a situation where he's going to Ferrari and actually Charles Leclerc, as amazingly fast as he was, I think there's still a level of immaturity to him. And will Carlos Sainz come in and actually, you know, win people over in, in Ferrari quickly? And, and I think that Ferrari almost kind of picked Carlos because they thought he's, again, I think Martin Brundle called him a Formula 1. Uh, called him a 1.5 or you know, a driver as opposed to a number one driver, but not quite a number two driver. And actually, will he? You know, I think he's very fast, and I think maybe Leclerc has the speed on him slightly. But if Leclerc gets the team, if um, so, if, if Sainz gets the team around him very quickly, then actually, is it going to cause a situation? Is it going to cause tension that they thought maybe they were avoiding by not going for someone like Daniel Rick or or keeping Vettel there? Actually, will that tension come out because? Leclerc gets frustrated that, that Carlos Sainz has come in and, and outperformed him in a way that he wasn't meant to. Yeah, and and I think it's, it's interesting, um, Ferrari's decision. I personally thought Ricardo was a slam dunk for, for that Ferrari seat. Um, but I can understand Ferrari's logic and decision-making. And I think it's interesting as well that people around the grid, you know, when Max Verstappen was asked about who he felt was going to get that Ferrari gig, he, he said Carlos Sainz. He, he tipped him to, to, to beat Ricardo to that role. Um, so there is, and we have to, you know, look at some of the stats around, you know, Carlos, uh, Carlos versus Verstappen. Um, and it even came out, you know, Renault as their justification, how times change Renault for their justification of, of, you know, keeping Hulkenberg over science was that Hulkenberg beat science over the, the two years that they were teammates. And they immediately referenced his performance versus Verstappen, um, as a, as a, as a reason to show Hulkenberg's class, but uh, indirectly that obviously shows science's ability as well. Um, but again, I, I suppose the whirling wheel of Formula One and how complicated it is. Hockenberg then kind of gets pushed to the side a little bit by Ricardo, who arguably was being fairly consistently beaten by Verstappen towards the end. So, no, what we're trying to say, listeners, is nobody has a clue about what's going to happen. No. We don't know. I think, just based on everything I've seen and, and how much Carlos Sainz has grown, as, as Johnny said, in that team leader role, that 
we're going to see something special at Ferrari in, in 2021. Um, and I, I hope purely because he's a likable person uh, that Carlos Science is, is able to to kind of t- tear up some trees at Ferrari and, and not ruin some suspension arms the same way Vettel and Leclerc were able to do in, in their final <laughs> final few races together. Yeah, I, and I think that's it. I think that's possibly one of the reasons that they didn't go for Daniel is that, you know, Daniel's had some tussles with Max and, you know, you can say some of them were racing incidents were 50-50, some of them maybe not Daniel's fault. So but at the end of the day, Baku. you don't said crash. Baku in my headset. I don't know who that was. <laughs> that came out of nowhere. I'm sorry, John. I don't know if the listeners heard that. Had oh, well, quite. <laughs> and uh, well, maybe there was a. Maybe there has been a more recent Verstappen shunt then. Uh, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but it. You don't crash with your teammate at the end of the day. You give them that extra couple of inches that you don't. You know, a great example is Jensen and Hamilton when they were teammates together. You know, they raced each other very hard at times, but they never came together. And that is the sign of two clean, experienced drivers. Can I say, can maybe... I say two words just just to be a, a spanner in the works? Montreal 11? Yeah, I think that was slightly different. Though. I think that that was wet and so much spray that no one could see anything that was going on. I mean, you could argue that Jensen had a very scrappy race there. And in some ways he did. But there was no way that I can totally understand that Jensen may not have seen him coming behind him with DRS and Kerr's going, you know, and that and he was just taking his racing line. And I think that, you know, that was... I'm definitely playing you know, devil's advocate there because I, I agree with you. I think it's it, there's a difference between a, a racing incident between two teammates, which happened once with those two yeah. at Montreal. Once in a pouring rain yeah. with no visibility, with, you know, many things at play there. Um, you look at Brazil and it's the same. 12 with those two, you know, they raced clean. Istanbul 2010 after the Red Bulls had crashed into each other. There's so many instances where those two were able to race cleanly and, and very well. And it just kind of, that's what we need, kind of need to, to see a bit more rather than, than the recent dynamics between teammates, which, although good for us, is does have a longer term effect because teams are going to be less likely to let their drivers race if they think they're just going to crash into each other. Yeah, I think, I mean, Eddie Jordan would have sacked most of, <laughs> most of those drivers many times over, I think. I mean, he, you know, he, and, and I do think, again, it goes, it shows to a level of respect that the drivers have with each other. And I, I think there's too many drivers these days that uh, it's hard because, you know, everyone, you look back and everyone loves that Senna and Prost falling out of McLaren and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, let's be honest, drivers should be mature enough that they, you know, a racing incident happens here or there, but they they shouldn't be punting each other off the road on purpose almost, which is how, most it's, how it sometimes feels in, in some of those teams. And I just don't think it's a healthy dynamic. And, you know, how must it, if you're the engineers on those cars and you put all that work in and your two drivers go and knock each other off yeah. by being idiots, you know, how's that going to make the rest of the team feel? There's a thousand people. It's a team sport at the end of the day. As much as we're there cheering for the, for one driver or another, it is a team sport with and most teams have 500 to a thousand people plus the engine side involved in some cases. So, and that, yeah, quite, quite interestingly, what we, what we do see, and, and I suppose what F1 could take a leaf out of is, is the world endurance championship because there you've got, you know, multiple teams and, and multiple drivers, you know, within, within the same team. So Toyota, you know, often run two, two cars, sometimes three, if we're lucky at Le Mans. And, you know, you have to be aware of, you know, your teammate and what they're doing, what their, their goals are. You know, I would say that there's often uh, an argument to be had as to how much Toyota chose to let Alonso win the past two Le Mans. 
um, in terms of the, the inter-team dynamic and obviously the, the name recognition. But the racing that did occur when those two met on track was always clean um, and always pushing it to the limit. And I think WEC, is, WEC has been a fantastic advert for that over the past few years in terms of teams able to, to kind of run closely and, and teammates able to run closely. Um, and actually, even in we didn't see it so much in the virtual Le Mans that, that occurred the weekend just gone. Johnny, how much of it did uh, did you able to were you able to catch in the end? Only very quick highlights and a few bits and pieces, and then I've I've read the the results from there on. So I think yeah, something we want to talk about now is the virtual Le Mans um, and 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 the thoughts on it. So I think you're probably the the best person maybe just summarize the race quickly, and then we'll maybe talk about some of the the things that happened what johnny's saying there it. listeners is that i had less of a weekend than he did last weekend i was able to sit and devote many hours <laughs> to watching uh the virtual le mans but yeah it for me i think it was fantastic it was a great advert for sim racing first of all and i think it, it's it's positive to to show obviously during the lockdown that you know we can still kind of soldier on and and, and show entertainment i love the the pro driver element for me i actually personally would have loved to have seen a few more pro drivers but i'm also very happy that that some top sim sim racers who gave some fantastic racing uh, were able to to demonstrate their their craft uh, what i found uh, very interesting uh, as well was the the gte element so for those of you that may not have been aware you saw ferrari in the race ferrari actually only had a car in r factor 2 which is the simulator used for, for virtual le mans they only had the car a week before and uh, you can probably compare that to real life in some ways in the sense of you know, having a, a week to prepare with, uh, with two or three teams, or I forget how many they had, um, for, for a 24-hour race is, is difficult. Um, but it was a it was a real good challenge, and, and you saw the way they dealt with it and were able to kind of intertwine it back into real life with the, the several red flags when, when servers crashed um, was, was very well done. And, and to have the actual uh, race directors, uh, the, the familiar sounds coming over, coming over the radios to all teams, uh, was very good but it wasn't without its flaws was it Johnny it unfortunately wasn't and I think unfortunately it's I've said unfortunately many times that um, I mean, there is took... no other way to say it though it is it is unfortunate because well, we were all will, it willing for it to, 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 to work and be a success I know uh, there is a driver that both of us somewhat admire in Fernando Alonso that I think wasn't you know was, was robbed of a, a good go at it shall we say uh, you know a, a good race and i think uh, um yeah there was a, a few incidents of cars ending up upside down when maybe they shouldn't have been upside down and, and things like that that uh, was somewhat frustrating that took took what could have been some quite interesting racing towards the end and maybe made it into more of a kind of a two car race when it could have been maybe a four or five car race at that time yeah 100 percent. And, and personally you know the in terms of racing I felt the last half hour of the virtual Le Mans was among the best I've actually seen, not just in sim racing, but it's up there in terms of drama and tension with some of the best uh, races I've ever seen. I think you have to go back to maybe the 2017, uh, or is it 2016, I think, 24 Hours of Le Mans. We'll fact check that afterwards, folks, don't worry. Uh, The uh, 2016, 24 Hours of Le Mans, where Toyota pulled up a lap uh, to go because they ran out of fuel. We thought we were going to be in the same situation again. Um, the the Williams the Rebellion Williams eSport car driven by Nicodem Viznecki was uh, was about to run out of fuel. We all thought that there was no way he could, and at the same time he was being bared down on by the bicolors entry, and it was fantastic. I couldn't I couldn't pull pull myself away. And I, and I think that as well that's 
that the, the fuel factor and things added a huge, as it does to the real Le Mans, added a, a huge amount to it. And I think probably being bared down so quickly by that by Collis car maybe made them push and, and maybe not pay attention to their, you know, their fuel management and things so much, which, you know, yeah, added a huge level of almost when I say realism to it, it made it feel like you were watching the real Le Mans at that point. And I have to say that, the, you know, the two Williams cars and the Bicolis, uh, Bicol's, well, I never know how to pronounce his name as well. Yeah, yeah, this is Lam- another one that if you can help us at home, <laughs> how we pronounce it. Yeah, I think it's Collis, it's Colin Collis, isn't I it? Think I it think. Is, yeah. But yeah, the names. Um, yeah, the, the Bicolis car chasing down on the, the Williams cars and things just, you know, added a, a really exciting element to that race. And, um, and something that, don't always see and something that let a team that maybe has been struggling in the in the real world you know show their their racing spurs and i think williams as a, as a team have always been a fantastic race team anyway i think that they you know if they build a bad car that's one thing but i think from a, a racing standpoint of view there's few teams out there that are better than williams and, and kind of having maybe that flatter um structure that you know that brought the teams together somewhat from a technical perspective we can say what we want about that maybe the cars that have been produced by williams over the years but you know look at the pit stop records over the past few years you're going to see williams either at the top or very near the top of of those rankings and that shows a team and an organization that's that's still efficiently running the bits it can influence um and i think the esports thing is is a is a tribute to that you know, a couple of shout outs that I think we, I would personally like to do, having watched the you know, vast majority of the race. The stuff of Van Dorn, I thought was fantastic uh, in for vast majority of the race. One of the few drivers who went during his stint was able to, to keep up with the sim racers in opposing cars, which is phenomenally impressive. Uh, I know that Stoffel's had some success in the e-racing community over the past uh, kind of few weeks and months. Started a little bit in obscurity for me when they did the first uh, virtual Grand Prix in, in Australia. Stoffel was a little bit, a little bit in the in the distance, not really competing, but um, he was successful in the Formula E Race at Home Challenge, uh, which mm-hmm. again it was using the R Factors uh, sim platform, so it was very difficult uh, and kind of proto realistic sim, and he did very well against again a very strong field there. Um, and again, you know, during the, the virtual Le Mans, I think he was fantastic. He showed a tremendous talent. Uh, Tom Dillman as well in the bike collars entry. That again, we will figure out some consistency on how to say at some point. Uh, he was brilliant uh, to, to kind of get that car marred a little bit by the jump start uh, at the start of the race, but uh, the recovery from that car to still be in contention at the end of the race is fantastic. Uh, I think we have to say a little bit of a commiseration to, uh, to Verstappen and, and Norris, who were very unlucky, uh, led the race for a vast majority of it, um, but a, a server glitch or a lag, depending on who you speak to kind of punted them out of uh, out of contention and uh, some colorful language from Verstappen for those of you that were listening to the, <laughs> the live stream might have heard but it just shows you I, I, I like that you know got a lot of stick for that Verstappen but for me it shows you how seriously they were taking it you know in fairness to in fairness to Verstappen if you uh, listen to the commentary on Dutch TV that's done in English quite a few of those words are used quite normally yeah so, it's, it's... Um, Right, so we've alienated Cyril, <laughs> Renault, and now the Dutch. <laughs> well, no, I think I, I think there's, there's an endearing factor to it. I, I, I don't have any problems with the, that language being used, but yeah. British TV censors do. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we, we love you, the Dutch. Please, <laughs> if, you, if you're not already listening, please do. Um, but yeah, I think if we were to maybe look at some improvements, I mean, I, I have a couple off the bat, but, you know, Johnny, I'll, I'll defer to you on that. 
Yeah, well, I just, uh, b before then, actually, I wanted to make another um, kind of honourable mention An for Alonso. One. We're going yeah, to be here just, all day. I just, <laughs> um, I just thought, yeah, I think that Alonso, for someone who in my head has never been connected with as a sim racer, um, I'm sure he spent a lot of time in the Marinello and the McLaren and the various sims over the years, but, you know, never one to sit at home on these platforms that I know of anyway, um, he seems to have taken to it like a duck to water as well and absolutely come out of the gate and really smashed it. Yeah. Um, but for those of you uh, and... that, that haven't seen it, take yourself over to, to YouTube, have a look at the race series that was, uh, that was run on our factor, uh, for the Sims and the pros. And they had a legends race that was predominantly using a, a 1970s F1 car that's, that's on our factor. And, uh, if you are in any doubt as to Alonso's ability, watch him on that. The man came with very little practice, as Johnny says, and and dominated. There's no other word for it. It was him and JB, really. It was, and I think he he kind of stole JB's thunder a little bit because it was JB kind of dominating the championship, and the two of them had an amazing battle at IndyCar. And I and I think it's this is this is all a positive for the sim racing world because it showed that you know top drivers will always rise to the top. I mean, I think Fernando in, in the second race of that Indy 500 uh, race was started at the back because he won the first race. And he brought himself through the pack at Indy, bear in mind, uh, to, to, to win to win the race to win the second race as well. Uh, and I think it's it's a great demonstration not only of how far sim racing has come, but also the, the talent. You know, his talent, no matter where where you kind of put it, it will always it will always rise to the top. I was uh, listening to the Beyond the Grid podcast of the day with Nick Heidfeld on there, um, and he was saying that he's actually just had a really big. He's he's never really been into the the sim stuff that much, and he's just had a, a big sim delivered. So you know, someone who has been out of F one now for what eight seasons, and he didn't really do it huge. He did DTM for a bit afterwards, I think, didn't he? And he hasn't done a huge amount of other motorsport post F one. Um, you know, getting interested in and, and getting back into it, which shows that a lot of people obviously see there's a gap in the market someone else actually who got into it and big props because they were using an xbox 360 controller who was jacques villeneuve i don't know if you saw I that did, when he I was did. racing in the legend races and came up here. i did see that and i thought that that was maybe took the sheen off it a little bit in terms of the realism factor <laughs> when you just saw uh for those of you that saw the live stream it was just jack basically sitting at a laptop with 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 his uh sim racing controller which took took the sheen out of the realism especially when you saw the other drivers sweating profusely <laughs> at the hands of their their uh, their direct drive wheels um but yeah i suppose if we move it on to the the improvements johnny unless you unless you want to give more shout outs because we i mean i'm happy to talk about alonso even more because i think he's been brilliant the past past few i years. think maybe we should move on well, i think uh, otherwise this podcast is going to be about six hours long um so improve improve yeah then, johnny i mean it wasn't without fix the server issues yeah so, i think it, i i think is that the, the the first big problem um you know is it server is it internet connection what is it i mean in post COVID times or when COVID's somewhat more under control, I think that the reality is a lot of these sim races may end up being in a big room with, you know, everyone having the same simulator yeah. and uh, built out. And I think, you know, that is the only realistic way to, to get rid of these problems, especially on a 24 hour race, because I know what internet is like in my house. I've got fiber internet at home and Show off. it you know, still <laughs> drops out sometimes. I've, yeah. got, I've got a man on well, a treadmill here, just slowly powering. <laughs> <laughs> that's how it feels sometimes um, anyway 
well quite and it, and unfortunately under uh, under covid with i think half the world working from home at the moment it, it's not made the internet connections any better for me mm. um i'm not sure about yourself so um yeah i think that you know i think that is for me the biggest takeaway from it i think there was maybe some some strange penalties and things given out too um which maybe or timings of penalties and things that maybe you know stewards in real i don't want to say real i think that's almost puts the sport the esports down a bit but um we can collectively say that we're not putting the sim racing world down when we say you know there were some inconsistencies in what the game may have perceived as being a penalty versus real life and i think yes. you know without making this a further alonso loving that is one of the most ridiculous things i've seen uh in a in a sim racing game for many a year uh to, to kind of be given a penalty as you're pulling in fuel and the game not being able to recognize that you couldn't do both at the same time, but rather than attribute the penalty at the start of the next lap, but give it to him as he's trying to fill up and therefore Alonso leaves the race was a little bit silly. And I think that there is a, there's two ways you can look at it. It's one that maybe they can improve the algorithms and get rid of that kind of thing. Or the other thing is, let's be honest, if we've got real drivers in the race, why do the stewards need to be digital as well why can we not get you know irl racing stewards to be the ones that make the decisions and, and build an interface for that which if you know if these platforms are going to be used for series where there is prize funds and things at the end may need to happen because let's be honest computer systems you know they only the the, the thing is that things can happen in racing that no one expected and you can only program for things that are expected. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you need a bit of common sense in there. So whether it's to have an override or whether it's to have, you know, what let's for when it's, you know, there's money involved or whether, you know, when it's people who sponsored people and things, we take that out and we have, you know, a team of race stewards as, as you would with, with F1 sitting at a computer and kind of controlling it. And I think they, they um, did to some extent in, in the, in the virtual ones, I think the issue was mainly around how the game interpreted the command, um, which is going to happen. Like there are going to be states and by no means are we bashing um, sim racing. Johnny and I are avid supporters of the sim racing community. And it's, I think it's a really good thing to see. And it's a leveler. Most sport has often been an elitist world. It's the people with money or sponsorship who have often risen. And actually, uh, one shout out that I think we have to do is, is you know, for people like uh, the shed dweller himself, Jimmy Broadbent, who is able to, to race against professional drivers purely on the merits of his sim racing and, and the following that he's been able to cultivate. So we're not by any means dishing the dirt on sim racing. We are supposed of it. And I think if they are able to get these things fixed, it makes it more likely in the future that events like the Virtual 24 will happen again because there'll be an appetite for drivers such as Charles Leclerc and Fernando Alonso and Giovinazzi to come back. Though I think Charles Leclerc and, and, and Giovinazzi may be less inclined after leaving the pit lane and the game flipping the car on its roof. But one team who didn't have such dramas as we've already talked about was the winning Rebellion Williams eSport team. Uh, which was driven with two pro racing drivers and two sim racing drivers. Uh, and Johnny, I think it's, it's, it speaks very well for, for Williams and their esports campaign because they, they have been one of the top running sim, sim racing programs. And this is just the, the cherry on the cake for them. Yeah, I think you're you're right there, and I think it brings nicely on from what you were previously saying um, about giving everyone a bit of an equal platform and not just in, in the WEC actually George Russell has now won the the official Formula One um, sim racing program using what they use the Codemasters game as a base for A it shows the incredible talent of George Russell which I think 
the last year's car okay yeah he beat, beat robert kubica um but i i think he's an unknown quantity now i think obviously pre his accident he was one of the best drivers on the grid but i think now when you look back um who he's not had a base you know he's not been next to alonso he's not been next to um to vettel in a similar car in the last couple of years so he's an unknown quantity so it was always hard to tell how good george was mm. um next to someone like robert no, um, in his current capacity and i think i think this is just another you know he's had a fantastic junior career and i think this is another feather in his cap that kind of shows okay now this guy is a, is a real talent yeah 100 percent. and and actually it gives some encouragement for for say williams as a team to know that you've got someone you know, george russell in your team you know again it is as johnny says very difficult to to benchmark how uh he compares to his former self in terms of Robert Kubica pre-accident and post-accident. You know, he suffered some horrific injuries. And for me personally, him returning to the grid was one of the best news stories of, of the past decade in Formula One. Um, because I, I generally think with that, you know, car that he could have had in 2011, had he not sustained those injuries in that rally accident, it, he could have been up there challenging for, for titles. Um, so it is a definite shame. But again, you know, with George fairly comprehensively beat Robert, you know, despite the, the, the points uh, deficit, which which occurred in, in, in Germany, you know, George has, has shown himself to, to kind of be one of the next big talents. And I, and I do feel that he has been kind of missed out because he wasn't in the machinery to show the heroics that say Lando or, or particularly Alex Albon uh, showed. But if, you know, if we look back to 2018, George Russell was the star in Formula 2. He, you know, he nearly dominated that championship in terms of the, the points and, and he went on a real run from from you know some early season issues to to come out as by far the, the strongest driver in that field so to see him you know in in the williams but actually uh, to have a driver of that quality in in the williams is, is something for them to be positive about in the future it just hopefully that mercedes give him a little bit longer in that drive uh, to, to to kind of be effective and i think williams as an organization need that at the moment yeah and i think it's a shame in that in a normal situation he would be you know the 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 path that um i think mercedes would probably want unfortunately because of where williams currently are would probably be you know a year or two in williams then maybe a year in a racing point just to to, to prove the point shall we say hey, and to then prove the up. racing point point exactly uh, <laughs> up to the you know the the main team maybe at which point Valtteri or Hamilton uh probably more likely Hamilton is ready to retire um and, and move into that obviously subject to Ocken um and I think that the, there isn't a space now at what soon will be Aston Martin I think that they are you know a, a full works team I think Perez is very much built into that team. I think they like him uh, listening to Andy Green on other podcasts talk about, um, you know, what they think. They think he's the best driver on the grid for time management. Um, and, you know, he's not a slouch either. Um, and obviously knowing who now owns the team and who owns Aston Martin, our, our previous friend that we talked about is, you know, he's there for the, the long run. So um, there isn't that space. And in Williams, as they are currently, it's going to be hard for him to prove himself. But I think if the, the Sims there and the numbers are there, and, and, and especially with Toto having recently bought a slither of Williams again, um, I think that, you know, if they think it's uh, 
you know, I think if it's uh, uh, it gives him a good opportunity to to prove himself, even in maybe a subpar car. Yeah, and if you look at over the history of Formula One, it's it hasn't always been the Hamilton story of straight in at the top. You know, Alonso started at Minardi in two thousand and one without scoring a point, but he still tore up trees. You know, he was still able to demonstrate enough talent to to con- well, not not necessarily to convince Ryan to take a chance on him, but to prove what you know Flavio Briatore saw in him. Um, you know, he had that scholarship, Raikkonen with with Sauber uh, at the same time, Massa, you know, that a lot of recent drivers who have been at the top have all served a, a, an apprenticeship uh, in the, in the I lower think I don't think realistically it's rare that the, that driver goes in the top. All the Red Bull guys, none of them went straight into, you know, RBR. They all went through Toro Rosso slash Alfa, well, none of them Alfa Toro because that's this year, but you know what I mean? They all went through that path first and Hamilton, I think, is more the anomaly. Even Leclerc has did, you know, a year at Sauber. Mm. Um, no one, it's rare that teams throw someone in the top. And let's be honest, Mercedes don't need to. They don't need to take that risk. They've got two drivers there. One who is capable of winning so far six, probably seven or eight world championships before he retires. And the, the other one there, you know, is there to pick up the pieces and the race wins, bar one bad season on the, on the other days. And, and he seems to be getting big. Get a, getting better, stronger and faster every year at the minute. Um, they, Valtteri said he's recently, I've listened to some other interviews, said he's the fittest he's ever been. And, and not from, you know, every driver says that every season, but actually I think looking at him, he does. Uh, he always, to me, used to look slightly portly and he does not anymore. He looks uh, mm. super lean and mean and ready to go. So, you know, why would they take the risk? Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's hundreds of millions of pounds there. So I think George hopefully now has a platform to prove himself and i think that brings us on nicely to talk about you know williams as as a whole as a team now and i think uh you know i think they've made a step forward this year from what we've seen so far but how much of a step who knows i mean what's your opinion on that so i think williams had a very positive testing uh, campaign you know you you always judge yourself against the, the previous year's performance and straight out the the gate you know williams were were quicker than they were the previous year you know, in, in 2019, Russell on, on the softest compound was able to achieve a 118.1. And, uh, you know, the best time of, of this winter testing campaign was a 16.8. That's a 1.3 second game. That's that's good for, for the first car of the season. So you kind of think that along with 737 laps uh, completed throughout the winter testing campaign shows how much of a step they've made uh, from, from last year. I think, you know, although if we're being honest, they're probably towards the end of the, the midfield, if not just about sc- scraping into it. I think that aligned with uh, some, some very good drivers for this year. I think, you know, Latifi brings some backing. I know his dad has previously invested in McLaren, but has also uh, backed his son's junior career. Latifi has always looked strong in, in Formula 2. Um, and, uh, you know, George Russell, obviously, we've, we've spoken about in terms of his ability. But also in the back, I think Williams are, are growing in terms of their their driver lineup, and they were only you know let's bear in mind they were only 0.5 seconds away from from let me try that again, and they were only half a second away from from the team in front of them, which again is is a massive improvement on on 20, uh, 2019. So the drivers that they've got coming through, um, you know, Daniel Tickton, who I'm sure we're going to have to do an episode on at some point. <laughs> Uh, in terms of his his comeback, Jack Aitken, uh, who you know, as Johnny said earlier, turns about attending most sport races. I saw Jack Aitken at Silverstone last year produce a stunning overtake on on Louis Delatraz to to win the sprint race. Um, to to massive cheers, I must say, in, in the British fans. So he's one to watch. I, I think a favourite, a presumptive favourite for 
for the 2020 Formula 2 season when that gets uh, gets underway as well. Um, and also, you know, Jamie Chadwick as well, uh, you know, recently announced that she's doing a Formula 3 campaign with Prima. So I think the, the, the point here for Williams is that they have a very strong, you know, stable of drivers for them to, to pull on. But the thing they need to do is is make sure that the the car is up to scratch and that seems to be moving in the right direction. But Johnny, one kind of interested to know about Williams is you've mentioned Aston Martin and that recent tie-up. You've got Alfa Romeo feeding effectively a feeder team for, for the Ferrari uh, for the Ferrari stable. Are Williams using an outdated model in Formula One, trying to be an independent constructor? Is it really only McLaren that are going to be able to make that model work? Or do you think Williams have a, a genuine chance of, of getting back into that midfield scrap? I think when you look recently at the teams that have a budget similar to theirs that have been successful, they've, you know, for, for their budget, have always been feeder teams. If you look at Haas, if you look at Alpha, if you look at um, Racing Point slash Force India, um, I just don't really see how with the kind of budgets and the facilities they've got because let's be honest they're not going to have the budget to invest in a better wind tunnel invest in the things that they need to um i i don't see it happening i think that that is has been a mistake and it goes back even to the adam par days obviously that a lot of the teams at that point wanted to have to, to sell the previous year's cars from the top teams to the lower teams and they resisted that which i think is right i i i want Formula One teams A to be able to develop as the season goes on, otherwise they'll start off strong and, and fall back down. Um and, and B to um have that kind of diversity in cars. That's part of the, the thrill of Formula One for me. But all those bits that are under the car that make less of a difference, there's a you know, there's a tenth of a second. I mean how much time are they going to find in designing a new gearbox mm. unless they redesign the whole philosophy of the car? Um you know, unless they have a serious budget, unless they're going to be pushing that new budget cap, that one, four, five million, which I just don't see them doing currently. I think they're going to, if anything, have to reduce their budget, looking at, you know, time for sponsorships, et cetera, at the moment. Um, and yeah, now lacking, you know, the, that title sponsorship, they, they've got less money. And okay, you could argue that they're looking for buy-ins. Maybe that was the reason they got rid of that. And maybe they are thinking of going down that model. I think anyone who comes into that team now and, having seen what Lance Stroll's done, um, or sorry, Lawrence Stroll has done with uh, Racing Point and soon to be Aston Martin, um, and how successful their new car looks, getting closer and more affiliated with Mercedes. Why wouldn't Williams want to do that? What are they, you know, what is being so stubborn that they have to build their own gearbox? What is that really achieving when they have the slowest car on the grid? You know, it's not giving them any, it's only they that if they continue to be last on the grid, that there's a good likelihood they will go bankrupt. They will not exist as a team anymore. So what do they want? Their stubborn pride that they can design their own gearbox or to have a, a racing team that's got a fighting chance of surviving and a fighting chance of, you know, maybe nip, nicking a podium or even a win here or there. And I think it's a good point uh, you raise because with Williams, you know, they are often quite a proud team. And I, I, it is a question that, that I'll pose to you now. Ferrari receive heritage payments from Formula One. Do you think now Williams could arguably say that they're at the same level in terms of Ferrari? I mean, nobody wants to see Williams go bankrupt. I think that's the general feeling in Formula One. But, you know, Ferrari seem to be the only people receiving protection payments in order to keep them in Formula One. Should Williams be receiving some kind of heritage payment? 
I think Williams do actually think they get 10 million a year, but when you compare that to the 100 million that Ferrari yes, get, so, yeah. um, it's a, a totally different thing. And even the other manufacturers, because they wanted to, you know, if you're an engine manufacturer, they want to keep you in the sport. They don't want you going away. Um, so I know that McLaren get a small heritage payment, I think it's about 20 million, and the other manufacturers get extra money as well for being, you know, engine manufacturers. Mm. Um, and I think that maybe Williams need more than that. And especially if, you know, they have a, a model where they are still building a little bit more of the car than, you know, I, I, I think it's unfair that a Haas, when, you know, half that car probably comes from Ferrari, mm. maybe do get less than Williams. But then maybe that's the fact. And I think it goes back, Bernie Eccleston always wanted them to buy the cars or buy more stuff from other teams. So we'd have to pay them less. And let's be honest, Liberty Media are not a charity. Mm. They're a publicly traded company. So they're not going to want to give teams a particularly larger slice of the pie. So, okay, yes, firstly, maybe we need to try and make it fairer so the teams are getting a more equal slice of the pie. But there, there is no doubt that the costs have not spiraled out of control in that sport. I mean, to, to be able to get two cars on a grid should not cost $100 million a year. That you know, in two cars that are two and a half seconds off the pace, um, so you know the, the things do need to change in that sport, and I think it's the right direction they're going. Where the the part, fans are interested in the aerodynamics, and fans are interested in little innovations, and, and want a bit of differentiation in there. But there's a lot of the stuff under the skin that fans, you know, why why can the teams not have a, a, a one screw that you know they have to all teams have to use this screw why does every team need to design their own screw that's manually milled out and makes no real difference to the sport uh, you know it probably adds twenty thousand pounds a year to the the racing of the cars it's it's got very black and white formula one i think in terms of the, the conversations around it i think there's particular personalities in the paddock that, that tend to be a bit more devices than others um so when you have the customer car uh, argument being put forward by you know say bernie eccleston he's doing it to, to make a point or when when he was doing it, he was doing it to make a point but it doesn't have to be all or nothing and you make the point about that about the screw it may seem trivial but it, it it it's not trivial you know you look at what racing point did as we've talked about uh, with the mercedes uh, car from last year effectively copied it now there was a lot of outrage amongst the paddock going, can they do that? Is that legal to do? You know, you cast your mind back. The, the 2005 Toyota was based on the 2004, 2004 Ferrari. Ferrari. Yeah. Yeah. They did the same thing. They went and took photos of it, yeah, yeah. and they copied it badly um, and then ended up with a not very good car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the way, that's the way it works badly. But, I mean, they did get a couple of podiums yeah. and a couple of pole positions that season. So it was an improvement on what they had before. Um, I mean, it, it, it's probably somewhat helpful to someone like Racing Point as well that they go, right, we've got the gearbox from that car, so we kind of get an idea what how doing, that yeah. looks. And, and we've got this bit of crash structure, we've got this radiator, we've got this. So, you know, it, it, you know, it helps them that they can do that. But they haven't, as some teams tried to suggest at one point, gone and taken a piece of tracing paper and gone over... <laughs> Mercedes they, that's just that this is clearly not what's happened when you look at it um, it's not how Formula One still see car design of... works either is it let's be honest it's not yeah. as simple as just going I'll, I'll draw what that a front wing that looks vaguely similar you know all for, um, and Johnny this is your yeah this is your area of expertise you know my limited knowledge of aerodynamics it's not just a case of putting a brilliant front wing on a car it has to all work no. And actually, you know, you put the if you take the front the front wing of a Ferrari, the, the the thing is, it's all about airflows, and 
the front wing is the first thing of the car that the air hits. So you've got to integrate it. And it, you can still see a lot of the old Racing Point DNA in there, but they've just moved in the direction more of the Mercedes. And then they've realised, oh, well, the reason that Mercedes has done X is to get the airflow around here. So then they've done something similar, broadly similar. It looks to the naked eye the same. Um, and, you know, and that's because the airflow made sense for for Mercedes to do it. So it's clearly going to make sense if you're going in that direction for a philosophy. Um, and I think, I mean, realistically, when you look at most of the grid, when you look at McLaren and things, most of the teams on the grid have, have copied um, Red Bull's philosophy of late anyway, which is to have a kind of pointy car with a, you know, quite high rear ride height, getting a lot of air, flow underneath the rear diffuser mm. whereas mercedes were actually the only team really ferrari have kind of ferrari's gone weird and they've almost gone for something in the middle of the two theories yeah. but um they've gone for the other total opposite direction and racing point always tried to look more like the ferrari and they were realizing that uh, sorry they were more like the red bull and they were realizing with the gearbox they had that that wasn't you know they were hitting a brick wall with that so that's why they've gone in that direction and yeah there are some things that look very suspiciously close mm -hmm. the nose that round nose yeah. that no one else has ever used i mean I, I can understand why people think that looks suspicious but when you look at the midsection of the car there are some quite large differences in there yeah and and i think actually when i saw that they'd done that i don't know about any other fan of the sport i said good on you because i think and to link it back to williams that is something that williams should have done you know in i know hindsight's a beautiful thing but if you look at if you have a fundamentally flawed car design as they have probably wouldn't pain you to go and look at what the rest of the grid is doing as you know johnny's alluding to there with the heavy red bull influence on on car design you know over the past 10 years and that high rake that everyone's kind of pursued for red bull that works uh, from from listening to agent newey or reading his writings that works because it forces air under the the front wing and through the front wing um for not every team is designed like that not every car is, is designing a car around that philosophy uh, so it, you know does take sometimes a, a look back and understand what your competitors are doing uh, and see if you see if you can replicate and i think it wouldn't take away none of us would have batted an eyelid uh, if williams had done what what racing point had done this season in fact i think we probably would have been commending them because they are they even are running on a, on a similar budget to, to, to racing point yeah and i think actually the irony of the situation is one of the big problems with the 2019 um car to my mind is they almost went and it felt like it felt like a car that was built by eight different people that didn't speak to each other and what had happened was um one team had gone and said oh let's copy the ferrari front wing and then another team had said right let's copy the mercedes midsection and another team had gone and said no let's copy the red bull rear end these aren't the exact parts they've copied but just to, to give you an idea and it looked like multiple philosophies that kind of were badly glued together and then when you looked at that car, it had no stability. I mean, you've got to listen to what the drivers were saying. That the car would change corner to corner. Mm. And it's because there was no flow. It was like five different cars had been badly glued together. And then you add the, the fact that it was overweight. And, and, and basically, that car was... It wasn't... They haven't, as a team, just forgotten how to design a racing car. You know, they, they haven't forgotten how to machine parts of a car no basically that car was designed because of bad communication and where that bad communication came from was it paddy low was it from claire was it that there was you know that there was a culture in that team and and paddy came in and was trying to change it and there was people that have been set in their ways in that team and didn't want to change and you know they went up and did their own thing 
and and that was the, the core problem um, with that team. And, and you've got to say that that comes from the top. And I think I could go, you know, going we're back gonna, to Williams. We're gonna lose, yeah, we're going to lose Claire Williams' chance of her ever coming on the podcast. <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm not necessarily going to, to say that it, it's 100% Claire's fault because is, I don't think the ratings... He is, he is saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think that... It, she's a commercial person and I think she was hired to run the team as it's de facto team principal um, due to the fact that Adam Parr left and Toto Wolf left and they're the people that they were going to have running that team um, and they were Adam Parr was a financial guy and Toto Wolf has proven himself to be a very good manager of people um, and that's, I think, what the team thought they needed at the time because it was a period where they were almost going bankrupt. They'd just been floated on the stock exchange. They were trying to get the, the flywheel business going and the applied technology business going. Um, but I think maybe they lost something from the racing side. And again, it goes back to what we were saying before about when the team was most successful um, recently was because they were, I think, were probably the closest they ever were to Mercedes at that point. Mm. Um, and maybe we're getting some, you know, the engines were perfect and they were getting, you know, they were built a good car around that. But as soon as they kind of lost that little bit of a halo they got from that, they, they fell back into the, the I think it, it covered up it, some of their, um, in the same way that the, the Honda engine being so bad managed to make, McLaren fooled themselves into thinking there was no problems with their team and they were all great. I think that the Mercedes engine being so good with Williams made them think that their car was a, you know, was a masterpiece when actually it was just good at not having much drag and had a powerful engine in the back so they could turn the wings up and get a lot of downforce. And as soon as after, you know, two seasons of having that great, they, they, they lost that momentum and they needed someone who's a bit more of a racer, who's maybe a better manager of the technical team. And I think they got Paddy in for that reason. And I think the problem is maybe Paddy wasn't allowed to do the job that he was put in for. And whether that came from the people below Paddy or whether that was because of the people above Paddy, I'm tending to think it maybe have been from the people above Paddy not giving him the support he needed, having who, seen who, the way that who certain members... Who are you suggesting then, Johnny, to push you for an answer? Who are you suggesting was, was behind that, that lack of communication? Well, I don't think it was Patrick Head or Frank because I don't think they're hugely involved anymore. So I think possibly it could have come from Claire. Um, there, there, and is having a, there is the way that Claire as well. I mean, if, if sorry, not to not to interrupt you. Go on, finish your point. Sorry. I was just going to say going into what happened in Drive to Survive. Um, uh, it's exactly what I was going to say. So yeah, go for it. <laughs> the 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 reaction of the the way that Claire didn't speak to, I think is the, the right answer to Paddy, when Paddy was kind of coming and I think Paddy knew he was in trouble, he knew that there's no real excuse for a car being that late and with that many problems with a team that has that reasonable resources, mm-hmm. but I just think it showed to a dynamic where I think the most successful do you, I don't think that Toto Wolf goes and sticks his head into the design office and tries to dictate how they should run the team, I think that you know, pre-Toto that um, Ross Braun went and set up that team, hired a lot of those people, left, and Toto came into the team and went, you know what, Ross has built a really great team here. Let's just leave that alone. I'll run the sporting side of things. I'll make sure they get the money and they get protected. And, you know, 
success has followed. Whereas I think maybe Claire was maybe micromanaging or Claire, she should have almost brought Paddy in as a partner on the technical side and said, you would know what Paddy, I'll give you two years, you go and rebuild that team in your image and then we'll see where we are. Mm. Um, and I think that probably is what didn't happen. Well, I think, you know, there is maybe credence to what you're saying in the sense of the people that you're referring to in the Mercedes design office when uh, Toto first came aboard includes a certain Paddy Lowe, um, who mm -hmm. was part of the, the, the Mercedes team that was so successful and continues to be successful. He's very important in laying the groundwork to that uh, from a design point of view. And, and although they've had some heavy hitters, you know, it was always Paddy who was paraded to the media, at least, as being the chief technical officer for, for Mercedes, um, even with the likes of, you know, Jeff Willis and uh, Aldo Costa being there. So it, it does speak to, to the, the kind of faith that he was shown at Mercedes. And it, it, again, you know, we can we can only go off what we see. And, you know, of course, Drive to Survive is edited in a certain way um, to, to yeah, obviously add, add drama. But it seemed from, from the, the images shown that there was a disconnect there and that there were questions being asked at a time of the season you wouldn't expect questions to be asked. It was reminiscent of uh, another program uh, done called Grand Prix Driver that was on Amazon uh, a few years ago, yeah. detailing the frankly disastrous uh, McLaren testing Honda, <laughs> Yeah, in 2017. Uh, you know, a program that was scheduled to follow them throughout the season got as far as testing before McLaren canned it. Uh, because... And I think a program that was meant to show them how that we've turned this team around and how great it's going, and literally just immediately went boom. Yeah. <laughs> so that that I mean, in the first episode, let's sack our yeah. CEO, and then it only gets worse from there. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's it, it's it was a similar vibe. Is what I was getting from the Williams thing and Drive to Survive, you know. And I I want to see that team succeed. I think we all do. We want to see it successful and. You know, Claire has overseen some very successful times at Williams, you know, um, the, although, you know. I mean, I would like to say, uh, from what I just said, I don't think Claire should go. I think that she really turned that team. I mean, let's be honest, there, there was a, that team nearly went bankrupt 10 years ago. Hmm. And she was an instrumental part in making that team successful, getting some great sponsors involved, Martini. Um, well, the Rocket deal, she, the was, she was supposed to be instrumental in, in getting first time. Yeah with the, the hp sauce bottle i don't know whether you believe that but uh it's it you know yeah it, it, there's some strange stories surrounding the rocket deal they, i mean rocket is a, a strange business i mean i don't know if you've looked at their phones I, i'm not quite sure what that was um but it bought well it, did it bring them the money is the question is that why they've got rid of them now but in theory it was going to bring them quite a, was it another rich energy but um <laughs> uh but yeah we don't mind alienating rich energy you are yeah there's there's <laughs> if we will happily we will reluctantly alienate some people but rich energy we will happily alienate i think <laughs> yeah quite um but yeah you know what was the story with that but yeah they but they've had some fantastic sponsors over the year the years that she's been there and like this mercedes deal was i think was very much put together with her blessing and her background and that worked well for them for a while um but they have had i mean it almost makes it worse that they were third in the championship what five years ago yeah and now they're last um and that means something catastrophic has happened in that team they've lost pretty much all of their sponsors they are where mclaren were you know five years ago but mclaren had a good excuse in that they changed to a an engine that didn't work out for them mm. um but they've got the best, I mean, maybe last year, okay, maybe the Ferrari was better, but 
as a whole what has been the best engine package on the grid for the last you know since the new regulations came in so the the, the excuses uh, there's, there's there's much fewer excuses for them than there are mclaren yeah and and i think it's in 2017 in, in Baku, you know, they did the reruns of that recently. There was a very real chance for Massa to win that race. So we're talking, you know, three years ago that, you know, Williams were in a race winning position. And, you know, you fast forward to, you know, even 2018 at the end of that season, you know, because 2018 is really at what everyone thought would be their nadir. You know, it was a car where the drivers were spinning off in practice uh, because yeah. they, they didn't know what it was going to do. And that carried on into 2019. And I think the other thing... If anything, it got worse. Yeah, it got worse. <laughs> and you look at the tw- twenty. 19 drive to survive and you know george russell for for a rookie looks like a team leader there and he's frustrated and he's trying to say that it's not good enough what they were doing and developing so i think you know i'm hopeful in terms of you know i don't want it all to be a negativity and, and, a, and a bashing williams day i'm hopeful for for you know the performance that we've spoken about how they've done in testing um, i think they've got closer than, than they were before and obviously the, the timing suggests that the, the, the half a second delta to, to the team in front um, and I think they've got good good driver lineup, a good solid driver lineup. Hopefully, they have sorted the technical gremlins, and now for them, it's a development race. You know, hopefully, they get the investment as well, and uh, we'll see something positive come from Williams this season. I, I think I agree. I think that when you look at this car, it, and it's a bit again, it goes almost back to to McLaren in those bad years, and and now when the car comes out of the box, it looks stable, it looks drivable, it looks you know, a reasonable car. So if they can then just now bolt on some downforce to it, I think that they're, you know, certainly going to be, especially if, if Haas have still got, if not sorted their drivability gremlins out, you know, I think they'll be sniffing around the Hasses pretty quickly. I think that could happen this year, even with the, you know, the token system and the things that are coming in with this, there's still quite a lot of basic aerodynamic scope to change on the cars that they're still allowed to change up until the middle of next year. So they can still put some downforce on that. The question is, will they decide, you know what, let's write these two years off, let's run them at as little cost as possible and let's focus on 2022. That is the other option for them. But the rules aren't solid for 2022 yet, so you'd think that they would spend a little bit more time this year on this car and maybe try and get it to where they can race it with the Hasses and um, and, and some of the the, the, the the midfield pack, really, instead of being the only backmarker, which is kind of what they were last year. Yeah, I agree. Now it's time for a segment that we'll be doing each week called What's on TV. And I'd love to be able to say to you that there is some great stuff to watch on TV this week. Uh, But really, it's quite quiet, isn't it, Johnny? There's not a lot going on to watch. Uh, Unfortunately not. Things are not quite rolling yet. (laughs) We're kind of all looking forward to that magic date of Friday the 3rd of July when Formula 1 returns. It isn't long, folks. You don't have to wait long. And after that, it is a bit of a crescendo. Uh, you know, shortly after that, the MotoGP will start. British Superbikes is back. And uh, we're kind of all gearing up as well in September for the real 24 hours of Le Mans, uh, which will kickstart the WEC series as well. So there's a lot of good stuff to come over the summer. Uh, but for now, uh, I think we just have to be patient. Maybe uh, rewatch some of the classic F1 races, which Formula 1 have been kind enough to uh, put on youtube and if we're feeling generous we might just stick a few links in the description for you i think that brings us on nicely to what will be a preview episode next week um, for the new formula one season i think we will be talking about the calendar so far what we think might happen in the rest of the year um, all the gossip from the pits as i'm sure the gossip will start rolling in now as it's been 
apart from a little bit of fun with Danny Rick and uh, Vettel being a pretty quiet silly season so far and we're just going to be excited to go back racing yeah 100% we're looking forward to it and hopefully you like the podcast you enjoyed what we've done today this is our first attempt so obviously all feedback is is welcome try and keep it constructive I can't help my voice so that is probably going to be a permanent fixture <laughs> of this podcast but yeah any feedback that you have please let us know yeah and that's also goodbye from me and look forward to speaking to you next week Thank you.